So you decide to take a tour on the public lands around the Los Alamos National Laboratories, which was part of the Manhattan Project that created the world's first atomic bomb, the one that was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan in 1945. And you think, hey, I'm with friends. I'm in a van. People live in this area. I'll be at distance from the lab, so not a problem. I'll be safe. But then... Two people deeply involved in local nuclear issues hand out protective face masks, and then they tell you... Yeah, I think that we all need to take protective behavior as appropriate. Women are born with all the eggs they'll ever have. Men can regenerate sperm in six months, so uh, we want to focus on youth, women, and those vulnerable populations, and try to engage in protective behavior. If your intuition says, I don't feel safe, get back in the van. Well, when you hear something like that from people who know, you realize that sometimes we get to sit at home behind our computers, and sometimes we're sitting in a van on the front lines of nuclear radiation contamination. But be our location near or far, we, all of us, including you, are sitting in that dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we get a tour of the Los Alamos National Laboratory from vantage points on public land surrounding it, as well as two museums that perpetuate the atomic myth without looking at the consequences. We are led in our understanding by Joni Ahrens, one of the founders of Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety, an extremely effective group in New Mexico. When it comes to Los Alamos, Joni not only knows where all the metaphoric bodies are buried, she unearthed them for us, one after another after another. It's a compelling listen. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than has been mentioned by either side in the U.S. presidential campaigns. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 8, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S. in New Mexico, where the National Nuclear Security Administration has announced that it will not require preparation of a new site-wide environmental impact statement for the Los Alamos National Laboratory, or LANL as it's referred to. This is with the laboratory revving up and building structures to produce key components for the nation's nuclear arsenal. According to NukeWatch, an organization based in New Mexico that monitors the lab closely, 
The NNSA is relying upon outdated studies from 2008, that's 12 years ago, to justify pit production. But since that time, the agency has wasted billions of taxpayer dollars. Another catastrophic wildfire threatened the lab. Serious deep groundwater contamination was discovered. And Lanel has had chronic nuclear safety incidences with plutonium that it can't seem to fix. Dr. Helen Caldicott called this decision absolute madness. To understand more about what Los Alamos is, what goes on there, and what its history has been, stay tuned for this week's special feature. Last Friday, September 4th, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission approved Portland-based New Scale Power's application for a small nuclear reactor that Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems plans to build at the U.S. Department of Energy site in eastern Idaho. This design has never been built, and there is no hard knowledge that it will work as promised. But in every article I read in doing the research for this, not one mentioned how much radioactive waste was going to be created over the course of a year of operation, and what was going to be done to properly dispose of that radioactive material. If there's good news in this, it's that more than 30 members of the Public Power Consortium Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, or UAMPS, have until September 30th to decide if they wish to bail on the project. Two cities, Logan and Lehigh, Utah, have already walked away from the project, and a third, Bountiful, Utah, is now considering dropping its support because of risks and a lack of backers. In Ohio, former employees who worked at the Piketon area Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant have filed a lawsuit that alleges workers and their families became ill due to the actions of the U.S. Department of Energy contractors. The lawsuit states that DOE's contractors released radioactive isotopes that, quote, have created a situation akin to a creeping Chernobyl and resulted in, quote, injuries, sickness, disease, including cancers, damage to DNA, death, loss of and damages to property, and reduction in property values. We're working on getting an interview about this issue. In Arizona, It has been reported that a swarm of five or six large drones flew in a restricted area at the Palo Verde nuclear power plant on two successive nights in September 2019. It took documents that had to be requested through the Freedom of Information Act to reveal that 24 nuclear sites suffered at least 57 drone incursions from 2015 to 2019. And Palo Verde itself was overflown again last December 2019, despite new security measures. In Georgia, Georgia Power's massive nuclear boondoggle, Plant Vogel, has had more than 800 workers who have tested positive for COVID-19 since the coronavirus pandemic began. More than 700 of the workers who tested positive are now eligible to return to work, and there are still 109 active cases confirmed as of last Friday. Note that there is no current data on COVID cases at operating nuclear reactors because last March, right after Nuclear Hot Seat began reporting the numbers by adding them all up, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission decided that they were going to repress those figures and not make them available to the public. Not saying that we were responsible, but the timing was interesting. 
And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none nuts on a week. The Oregon Department of Environmental Quality has fined two companies for illegal disposal of two and a half million pounds of radioactive waste near the Columbia River Gorge over a three-year period of time. Chemical Waste Management and Oil Field Waste Logistics were fined a total of, are you ready for this, $368,656 in penalties. How was that odd amount calculated? According to DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality, $308,656 represents the estimated economic benefit the companies gained by avoiding the additional costs of legally disposing of the radioactive waste. $60,000 is a civil penalty against one of the companies for failing to comply with the hazardous waste disposal permit that requires radiation screening. So let me get this straight. The companies are being fined the amount they would have had to pay in the first place if they hadn't tried to put one over on the state, which, by the way, Oregon law prohibits the disposal of radioactive materials in the state. And beyond that $308,656, the $60,000 civil penalty is all that's coming out of pocket and nothing on a continuing basis to take care of the contamination created by the waste that's going to impact people, the environment, the Columbia River Gorge forever? Dude, this is nuclear. They've got more money than God. And they're not going to stop with these shenanigans unless you can hurt them so badly they'll think twice before they try it again. $308,000, etc. Double it, triple it, quintuple it, octuple it. Make them pay through the nose so that it hurts. The only way they're going to stop doing what they're doing is if we make it so painful for them to even think about it that they won't. And that is why, in the Department of Miss Opportunities for the Department of Environmental Quality in Oregon, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. Looking at the international picture, Korea's Cori nuclear power plant in Busan lost power in four separate reactors because of Typhoon Maysak. The incident has raised concerns about the risk of nuclear reactors during the oncoming climate crisis when extreme weather events will happen with greater frequency, and experts warn that nuclear energy will become increasingly unreliable as extreme weather patterns continue. And speaking of climate change and nukes, in Greenland, rising temperatures risk releasing atomic waste from Cold War U.S. base. Codenamed Project Iceworm, the base was built in the late 1950s as an Arctic research laboratory. When the U.S. finally decommissioned it in 1967, large amounts of nuclear waste along with raw sewage and other toxic material was left behind. While the U.S. Army did remove the nuclear reactor, they assumed that the rest of the waste would remain entombed in the snow and ice forever. To which Mother Nature and global warming says, guess again, sucker. In Kyrgyzstan, in the former Soviet Union, decades-old uranium stockpiles are threatening the water supply of millions of people in the mountainous areas of that country. 
That's because nearby Soviet-era radioactive waste dumps left behind thousands of tons of uranium ore that environmentalists say is just one landslide away from contaminating the water supply for an area that is home to millions of people. Since the waste was buried in the late 1960s, there has been little monitoring or maintenance of the dumps, and according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, is in urgent need of cleanup. In Russia, Soviet-era submarines lie disintegrating on the seafloor in the Barents Sea outside Murmansk. The two nuclear submarines together contain one million curies of radiation, or about a quarter of what was released in just the first month of the Fukushima disaster. We'll have links to that and a second article on how forest fires are setting Chernobyl's radiation free up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 481. We'll have this week's special feature on Los Alamos in just a moment, but first, nuclear weapons on hair-trigger alert the framework of international treaties demolished, the seeming inevitability of a new arms race, Space Force aiming to introduce nukes in space, all in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. We are facing a wider range of nuclear dangers than ever before. And the only way to fight against them is to know what's going on and what you can do to change things. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, and especially now, with the coronavirus wrecking havoc on the safety of reactors, weapons, and radioactive waste. You're not going to be getting this information from mainstream media. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only place you can reliably count upon to report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth about weapons, radioactive waste management, uranium mining, and the COVID nuclear connection around the world. But to keep the show running takes time, energy, effort, and funding. And we are completely dependent upon your donations. As you might imagine, since COVID hit, things have been ever more challenging in that arena. And now more than ever, your help is needed to keep the show going. That's why, if you've ever thought about supporting us with a donation, the time to do so would be right now. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. That's where you can also set up a monthly $5 donation, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S., in that exact same red button. Please do what you can to support us now and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's Nuclear Hot Seat special. Last year, I attended the National Gathering of Nuclear Activists in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who have been and continue working on radioactive waste issues. While there, side trips were available to conference participants. One was a van trip to the lands around the Los Alamos National Laboratory. I want to make clear that these were public lands and not restricted sites, though we were warned ahead of time that radiation levels where we would be visiting would be elevated. Joni Ahrens of Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety served as our tour guide, with additional information provided by Leona Morgan, a Diné woman and founder of the Nuclear Issue Study Group in Albuquerque, and Ian Zabarte, principal man for the Western Shoshone Nation. The entire tour was a jaw-dropper. I sat next to Joni and recorded her talk to share with all of you. 
So there's both bad news and good news. The bad news is that because of the noises in the van as we drove and the wind whipping around us outside as we walked to our vantage points, the audio quality of my recordings proved mostly unusable. The good news? I got Joni to recreate her explanation of what she showed us, and it's every bit as powerful as being there, if not more so, because she can be heard. So just what was Los Alamos National Laboratory, and what is it now? That's what we're about to learn. I spoke with Joni Ahrens on Sunday, December 15, 2019. Joni Ahrens, thank you so much for joining us to recreate the content of the Los Alamos tour that we took the last day of the Nuclear Waste Conference. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. First, tell us a little bit about your background, the group Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety, and the work you've been doing on Los Alamos, or LANL, as we sometimes refer to it. I'm a co-founder of um, Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety. Back in 1988, when we found out that the Department of Energy, or DOE, was planning to ship all of the LANL waste that was destined for the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, which is called WIP, through the center of town on St. Francis Drive, past seven elementary schools, past the hospital, and there was no warning system at that time to let us know that these trucks that were proposed to carry plutonium-contaminated waste, you know, so that mothers could tell their children, please stay inside during these hours, those kinds of things. CCNS, or Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety, began as a result of addressing community concerns about this proposed transportation project through the center of town. And of course, like everybody who gets involved in the Department of Energy and the nuclear weapons issues, it very swiftly blossoms into many other issues like water contamination, burial of waste in unlined pits, trenches, and shafts, and emissions into the air. That's how we got started, and we've been at it for almost 32 years now, addressing contamination issues at LANL, as well as proposals to expand plutonium pit production at the laboratory. And plutonium pit production involves making the cores or the triggers of nuclear weapons. So it's a grapefruit-sized ball of plutonium with high explosives around it that are put into the nuclear weapons apparatus to create weapons of mass destruction. My work is mostly focused on the environmental and public health aspects of the nuclear weapons complex. I'm not really interested in the explosive power of various weapons. I don't know that. So what I focus on, as I said, is the public health and the environmental impacts of these weapons. And that's what I tried to convey during the tour, for people to be able to see for themselves and to experience for themselves Los Alamos. Give people a sense of how large Los Alamos actually is and the kind of facilities the site contains. I have to say that one of the things that surprised me the most is that I thought of Los Alamos National Laboratories as being, you know, maybe a, a campus, like a, like a corporate campus of buildings with each other. I hadn't a clue 
how much land was involved, how many facilities, the size of the facilities, and the potential for polluting the environment with radionuclides they were, because this was massive. Yes, it's a massive site, and it was originally farmers and ranchers, and the boys' school was located on the Pajarito Plateau. And when the Atomic Energy Agency came, the military came with them, and they removed the homesteaders that were there by gunpoint. The boys' school had an arrangement that they could stay until the end of the semester in 1943. It's quite a large area. Originally, it was 47 square miles across the Pajarito Plateau, which is a seismically active area. The last surface eruption was 1,400 years ago in that area. It's located at the base of the Jemez Mountains, and that's J-E-M-E-Z. It's located on the plateau above the Rio Grande, which is the lifeblood of New Mexico. It provides the water. And then to the east is the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. Los Alamos is located above our regional drinking water aquifer that discharges to the Rio Grande in a seismically active area that crosses the plateau that is cut by many canyon systems that also flow to the Rio Grande. The Department of Energy identified over 2,100 dumps across the plateau and in the canyons that had the potential to discharge contaminants that would flow down to the Rio Grande. There are many security reasons. The laboratory would not allow a public tour such as ours onto their property. In recent years when we've tried to do tours, we get caught up in the administrative rec offices for an hour or two trying to get the necessary badges to be able to be on Lanel property. It's just easier to look at the facilities from public places rather than having to deal with their bureaucracy that's really set up to discourage the public from asking for tours. Now, we drove quite a while out of Albuquerque before we actually began the tour. We stopped for an orientation where we were kind of given the rules of the road. When we got started, where were we and what were we looking for? We looked at where the airport is located. We looked at some stormwater management facilities that were near there where people could see the magnitude of the size of the stormwater controls to catch the stormwater before it went off into the canyons. What's the danger of the stormwater? There's the 2100 waste sites still exist. They've done a little bit of work on some of those, but they're the low-hanging fruit. Every time it rains or snows, there's the potential for that waste in those 2100 dumps to discharge and to flow towards the Rio Grande. So this is an attempt at mitigation? Yes. We very quickly went to a bluff that was across from the Los Alamos Neutron Science Center. What is that and what were we looking at? We were looking at a mile-long linear accelerator that is used for not only producing medical isotopes, but also for experimentation. And when it is operating, it is the dirtiest 
emission stack in the DOE complex. It has very high emissions into the air that are blown in the northeast direction, wind direction, towards communities downwind of the lab. We looked at the linear accelerator. We saw the steam coming out of the steam plant as well. What does that signify? That the plant was operating, so we didn't stay there very long. While we were driving to and from the various locations, we passed a large number of new homes being constructed downwind and downstream of some white fabric tents. Tell us about those tents and what's in them, and then let's discuss the advisability of constructing new houses there. Fabric tents were originally built in order to hold the transuranic or plutonium contaminated waste that was buried in Area G. Area G is a dump site that's 63 acres large, and it's 70 feet deep, and they do like a, a layer cake of waste in these large trenches. They're building homes downwind and downstream, homes that cost about 360 or $370,000. They're packed very closely together. They've had to do a lot of work in order to prepare the area, including blowing up the basalt. One newspaper report said that the basalt rocks were as large as Volkswagens, and they blew them up. So this is basalt that's been downstream of Area G. And in many cases, the tents, the fabric tents are ripped. And recently, the lab was fined for snow and rain getting on the barrels of plutonium-contaminated waste below the ripped tents in the so-called facility to hold them, to keep them safe. That's one aspect. The other thing is is that the homes are downwind of the fabric tent and waste disposal practices. There's a lot of buried waste at Area G as well in an area called the mezzanine, and then there's other pits. There's a lot of waste buried. There's a lot of liquid waste that's buried as well where the lab just came down and dumped liquid radioactive hazardous and toxic waste into trenches, creating pathways for the waste to get to sacred springs of the tribal people that live around the area as well as to the Rio Grande. I'd like to point out that at this point, we had been given masks by you to wear to protect us against the dust that was blowing around when we got out of the van that we were in. We were fortunate that we didn't get hit with as much dust as we might have because our trip took place on Veterans Day. And with it being a holiday, there was almost no construction work going on. So we were spared that. However, as we kept driving around the facility, you had a radiation monitor that you were holding. I was next to you in the van, and I watched it, and the experience was quite alarming. First, tell us what is considered to be normal background radiation in general, what's normal for that area, and let's compare notes as to how high we saw it go that day. Generally, it's around 30 or 33 counts per minute in that area. And we use the counts per minute on our rat alert because if we use the millirams, 
we get into arguments with the lab scientists about whether it's alpha, beta, or gamma. So it's much easier just to have the holistic measurement of counts per minute. So generally it's around 30, 33. But what we saw, what did you see? I saw it go up to 87. So we were about three times what we might call background, and so it was time for us to leave. And we got out of there pretty fast. Yes, we did. We did get out of there pretty quickly. How did you feel about seeing those homes being built in this area? I kept flashing on rocky flats and the problems that they have there because all of these homes that in that area are so much more expensive there in the 600,000 to 800,000 and higher range were built directly across from what they're calling a wildlife refuge, but is really the boundary area around where the pit production, plutonium pit production was taking place at Rocky Flats where they had a fire where it's contaminated. And this is proven by activists in the area but the real estate brokers continue to sell and resell the homes and people from out of state move in not knowing what they are facing. And it strikes me that this area with that high a radiation reading on a day when there wasn't construction kicking up dust and we were just driving by quickly, what is the potential there for ill health and contamination for the people? It's unconscionable. It's greed and it's stupid. Yes. And I'll just add some additional information. So before Richardson, Bill Richardson left as Secretary of Energy at the end of the Clinton administration, he was able to designate an area next to the Rio Grande below White Rock, which is the suburb of Los Alamos, as a wildlife he designated it as a nature type of preserve area, setting the stage to be able to expand that similar to what they've done at Rocky Flats. That, of course, is totally outrageous, but I'll try and rein in some of my more virulent responses. We are on broadcast as well as podcast. But we pulled off at the White Rock Canyon Overlook, and it was a tremendously dramatic viewing site. It was also one of the places where before we got off the van, in Zabarte of the Western Shoshone people and you both warned us about what we were facing when we got out of the van so that we could be a choice about our actions. Here's a bit of the audio from the actual tour. Yeah, I think that we all need to take protective behavior as appropriate. Women are born with all the eggs they'll ever have. Men can regenerate sperm in six months. So uh, we want to focus on youth, women, and those vulnerable populations and try to engage in protective behavior. If your intuition says, I don't feel safe, get back in the van. At that point, for my own protection, I was wearing both a medical mask, a disposable medical mask that I travel with at all times. I have them in my suitcase. And also the protective mask that you provided to all of us. In addition, I had plastic bags over my shoes so that I wouldn't have to throw away my shoes after the trip from the dust potentially contaminating that. So I protected myself as well as possible. And still, I was uneasy being there knowing what was in the air, what was in the water, what was in the soil. And while we were up there, 
there were families with small kids who were running around and kicking up the dirt and picking up things and not knowing what they were up against because there did not seem to be any kind of a warning, let alone an adequate warning of what the potential dangers were on that site. Is that the norm for these contaminated areas around Los Alamos? Yes. And so that's why when we went into the town site, I wanted folks to see the quote-unquote normalization of the nuclear weapons complex, how comfortable some people are living in a town that's surrounded by nuclear weapons facilities. Do we know what the radiation readings are for the town of Los Alamos? Is it something that is made available as, say, a weather report would be made available? No, not normally. We do know that the area where the D building, D as in dog building, was located, it was the first plutonium facility. It's still hot there. And where is that in proximity to the town? The town, it's across the street from the Ashley Pond. And the pond is in town? In town, yeah. How would you characterize the town of Los Alamos and the mindset of the people who live there? Generally, if you work for the laboratory, you start off at around eighty dollars to $100,000 a year with full medical benefits, with pension all sorts of benefits, health benefits. And, you know, Los Alamos County is one of the richest counties in the country, either number one or number two. The people have more savings than so many other people around the country. It's an area with many retirees and young families, but there's also a lack of acknowledgement of where they live we walked past that one store that had infant clothing with atomic bombs on the onesies, right? I have a photograph of that. That might just be the cornerstone photo that I used for this particular episode because it was total commercialization of the rah-rah, we made the bomb and we're still making weapons and aren't we the cool guys? Yes, And right now, there's a large influx of new people because the budget has been increased from $2.2 billion a year to $2.7 billion a year. So it's kind of like during the Bush II administration where they were proposing new weapon systems and new weapons facilities. People are walking around, and it's almost like you can see the dollar signs in their eyes that they think that they're going to be able to make even more money. There's just so much money there. And it's located around communities that are some of the poorest in the country, specifically Rio Reba County, which is to the northeast of the lab, and then Mora County, which is over the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. So. There's such a disparity. There's a disparity with regard to educational opportunities, with respect to sports, with respect to the need to say that they're the best. They're the best at everything. With some acknowledgement of the poverty around downwind and downstream of the laboratory. 
It sounds like Los Alamos is in its own way an island, a nuclear island in the middle of New Mexico, but there doesn't seem to be much trickle down in terms of the economics into that local indigenous poverty stricken environment. Yes, and it's important to say that the laboratory, when the Atomic Energy Commission came, they said that they were going to be there for a short amount of time and that they would go away. Well, they've been there since 1943, which next year will be 77 years. That's a long time in relationship saying you'd be there for a short amount of time. And obviously there's growing concerns about the amount of waste that's buried in the basalt, in the volcanic tuff, around the laboratory, no liners, no leachate collection systems, even though municipal landfills are required to have those kind of protective measures. And it's all moving to the Rio Grande and to the drinking water supplies of Santa Fe, Santa Fe County, as well as Albuquerque, because they're taking water out of the Rio Grande as well to recharge their aquifers. I have to say that the tour was deeply impactful, and you certainly helped to at least recreate the touchstones, the cornerstone pieces, and I'll be adding to this with some of my own commentary. One of your supporters who was on the tour dubbed this Joni's Toxic Tour, and I wonder whether Joni's Toxic Tour can be made available to other activist groups or even to the general public should they want. And if so, how would they go about getting in touch with you? The tour is available for anybody who's interested in going on it. We went on a a truncated tour, a longer tour that takes all day is that we go out to the Buckman where Santa Fe takes its water out of the river to be able to see more closely the relationship. So that's an all-day tour. And folks can contact us through our website at nuclearactive.org 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 is the website great and there's a contact us button on there so that they can get in contact correct yes and that's where they can also get more information about the work of concerned citizens for nuclear safety right you've clearly been doing spectacular work there important work there for well at this point over 30 years Los Alamos is one of those places that we have to keep our eyes on. I mean, there are so many. We can go cross-eyed just trying to keep up with it. But this is important work that you're doing by chronicling and then demonstrating to others exactly what the impact has been on people and the environment in New Mexico and, of course, beyond, because this stuff doesn't stay put. It keeps migrating. It keeps migrating. And at the time in 2004 when we did a report about travel times from key LANL facilities to the Rio Grande, the lab was saying it was would be hundreds of years to travel eight miles. It would be hundreds of years. And when we had George Rice, a groundwater hydrologist, do an analysis, he said that a particle could leave the radioactive liquid waste treatment facility and travel through all the different systems in the groundwater system to springs at the Rio Grande, a distance of eight miles in 26 years or less. So our work has changed the conversation about 
the laboratory in terms of providing actual evidence of what can happen, that it's not going to be hundreds of years away. It's happening in decades that contaminants would reach the Rio Grande. In other words, it's happening right now. It's happening right now, and we've detected the in-state, LANL, and CCNS has detected these contaminants at the springs at the Rio Grande that discharged the regional drinking water aquifer. Joni, this is important information. It's certainly the first time I've had clarity on the magnitude, the complexity, and the impact of Los Alamos. It's now, for me, much more dimensional than just the name of another nuclear site in the country. And I want to thank you for all the decades of work you have put in and also for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a, really a joy to do follow-up on the tour. Joni Ahrens of the Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety, based in New Mexico. You can visit the group's website and get an email to her about that tour at nuclearactive.org. I didn't go into detail during the interview, but while I was in the van, I was already wearing a disposable medical mask, something which I travel with at all times, to be prepared for circumstances such as these. Before we got out to look at the various sites, Joni gave us all N95 masks as well, and I wore both, double-bagged, as it were, paper and plastic, an attractive fashion statement I have documented on this week's website. I also put plastic bags over my shoes to protect them from the dust. If I'd thought about it ahead of time, I'd have packed an old pair of sneakers and then discarded them in the town of Los Alamos rather than risk bringing them home. I take the threat of radioactive contamination seriously. Los Alamos is a cute little tourist town dedicated to exalting anything related to the atomic bomb and the local involvement in creating it. It looked like a California beach town, but without the ocean. As Joni mentioned, the stores sold T-shirts, humorously, put that in quotes, extolling the wonders of the atomic age, diagrams of Fat Man, the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, one with a graphic of a big red atomic mushroom cloud that exhorts you to visit the atomic city, Los Alamos. It's a blast! Sounds like the introduction to the show, only with an entirely different meaning. There was even an infant's onesie that proudly carried the saying, I've been dropping bombs since day one. In light of the fact that a baby boy is five times more likely than an adult male to develop cancer from the exact same radiation exposure, and little girls are ten times more vulnerable, hey, why not smack atomic propaganda on a diaper next? And the commercialization of the atomic bomb did not stop there. You could buy a souvenir bobblehead of physicist Robert Oppenheimer, the wartime head of the Los Alamos Laboratory, and among those credited with being the father of the atomic bomb. We had an hour and a half on the ground by ourselves in Los Alamos to explore as we would. And I went initially to the site of a former boys' school, that became the headquarters of the Manhattan Project. It's now a museum where larger-than-life-size bronze statues of Oppenheimer and General Leslie Groves 
the head of the Manhattan Project, positioned out front, exactly in the right space for souvenir photos to be taken. So I did. I just assumed some rather rude poses and would appreciate getting copies of the one with the well-aimed self-defense fist aimed at a vulnerable part of both Oppenheimer's and Grove's anatomy. The boys and the school were kicked out when the Manhattan Project came to town and moved in, and this became headquarters and hangouts for the ingathering of physicists, engineers, and the like. Now a museum, the exhibits framed the building of the bomb in the most laudatory terms possible, of course, and as far as the human impact of the atom bomb, well, that place was brain-dead upon the arrival. Here's just part of the docent's welcome. Welcome to the guest cottage. This is where General Groves would have come when he came to Project Y, this part of the Manhattan Project. But for the ranch school, it had been the infirmary. In the other direction is the ranch school exhibits. And the last thing you'll see is the letter where they told him they're going to have to leave and not tell anyone why. And then behind me is the Manhattan Project. What followed were room after room that I wandered in watching the chronology of the creation of the bomb and its explosion, both in Hiroshima and also the bomb that was exploded in Nagasaki, never following up on exactly what happened to those boys and those ranchers who were displaced from their lands. As I made my way through the exhibits, I was struck by a copy of the coded letter sent to the Secretary of War announcing the success of the bombing of Nagasaki. This was the top secret message that was sent after Nagasaki to the Secretary of War. Doctor has just returned most enthusiastic and confident that little boy is as husky as his big brother. The light in his eyes discernible from here to high hold and I could have heard his screams from here to my farm. That explains the odd names that were chosen for the bombs. You could send a telegram citing something that happened to a fat man or a little boy and not raise a red flag. The place was filled with things like pictures of scientists frolicking at picnics that reminded me of the pictures of playful Nazi soldiers in Buchenwald with the crematorious smokestacks in the background. Yes, there were a few souvenirs from post-bombed Hiroshima, including a battered watch that stopped at the exact moment that the bomb went off. But no pictures of the real devastation or mention of how many people had been killed, estimated to be 66,000 out of a population of 255,000. In a final room, there was a wall that held clipboards with paper and pen attached that asked us to record our impressions of the museum. I scrawled in three-inch heavy black letters, PROPAGANDA, with at least one exclamation point, and went on from there. Somehow I don't think that comment got to stay up very long. Upon leaving, I had to express myself further. I have just left the Los Alamos History Museum in the Guest Cottage building, and I am flat-out furious. Because this is going to broadcast, I can't use the language that I would otherwise want to use. But the massaging of the information, the lack of pictures of what the bomb actually did on the ground, the incineration of human bodies, the destruction of the environment, 
Not one word about radiation. The R word was never mentioned in terms of what radioactivity did in the aftermath of the bomb and what radioactivity does in the aftermath of every single nuclear process that starts with uranium and goes through the whole fuel cycle. I was shouting out at the video that they showed, talking about how wonderful it was and how after the first bomb was dropped, all the soldiers at Los Alamos got calls from their moms saying, we're so proud of you, you built the atomic bomb. It makes me want to puke. And this is the propaganda that's put together, our tax dollars at work, convincing people that yes, and we have to keep going and we need more nuclear bombs and blah de blah lies, lies, propaganda and lies. But other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, what did you think of the play? From there, I walked a few blocks to the Bradbury Science Museum, a more modern and high-tech telling of the atomic legend, involving much more modern gadgetry and storytelling. It seemed to exist to excuse and justify the ongoing existence of Lanel. That's where I caught up with Ian Zabarte, head man of the Western Shoshone Nation, who gave us this take on the museum. So museums are gatekeepers for weapons making, weapons manufacturing, whether it's a gun museum or even the Matatessite Museum, this one here, the Bradmere Museum. These are gatekeepers to make sure that certain things like victims, downwinders, what really is happening to the land and environment are kept out. So this is a way to stop the real truth from getting out and they control the narrative right here in this building with tourists, with people who don't know. We were at the uh, Park Service building, which again houses information about this kind of thing, but they don't know anything about Nazis. They don't know anything about how these bombs were built during the Cold War, and they're just monuments to the gun. And they don't have the word radiation anywhere. No, they don't. And I, I think... Another thing that bothers me is these facilities, they're just glorifying the gun and the killing and not acknowledging any responsibility or willingness to take a risk to protect the planet, to prevent nuclear war. They think you have to take the risk to destroy the planet as a way to protect us all. And that's just backward logic. So an example is when we intervened in the Atomic Safety Licensing Board proceedings on the proposed high-level nuclear waste repository at Yucca Mountain, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission of the Department of Energy, uh, I mean, when we intervened in the Atomic Safety Licensing Board on Yucca Mountain, the Department of Energy argued that we could not use our own health information to defend us and assert our rights in the Atomic Safety Licensing Board, while at the same time they said that the overall benefits of the project would be beneficial to us. And when you say us, you are meaning? Western bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians, Native Americans. So they would deny us that we could use our health in the proceedings, but then they told us that the overall project would be beneficial. They can't destroy the environment and then claim that that's beneficial. Ian Zabarte. What he did not mention is that the Bradbury Museum is open every day except Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Yes, it is even open on the 4th of July. The rocket's red glare, you know. There was much more I wanted to see, but it was time to go back and catch my transportation. 
As I left, I felt steeped in a deeper understanding of nuclear waste issues, the radioactive corner humanity has painted itself into, and how extensive the problems we face truly are. It was horrifying to understand how compromised by atomic rebranded as nuclear issues the entire state of New Mexico seems to be, from abandoned uranium mines and the disastrous 1979 Church Rock uranium tailing spill on Navajo Nation land, which has never been cleaned up, to the Trinity site, a nuclear explosion, to Los Alamos National Labs, the waste isolation pilot plant, and now the big push to make Mexico the so-called interim waste dump for the country's high-level radioactive nuclear reactor waste, which is recognized as being a push to dump it and leave it forever. I also felt honored and humbled to be in the company of so many gifted, dedicated, knowledgeable people who are fighting nuclear insanity wherever it may arise. We are a strong, national, international community of righteous warriors willing to face down enormous odds and well-resourced opponents with nothing except the truth and our will to have it heard. My love and respect to all who attended the conference, to all who were on the van, and all who wanted to be there but were unable. You're in the front lines around the country and beyond that, around the world. Know that you, the listeners, will be hearing from many of these people in the coming weeks, months, and years of Nuclear Hot Seat. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The Back from the Brink campaign has organized a webinar and conversation featuring Dr. Vincent Intondi, historian and author of African Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, Colonialism, and the Black Freedom Movement. It's going to be a Zoominar this Thursday, September 10, at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And we will have the link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 481. In the wake of the Still Here platform, put together for the 75th anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, other events are taking place. A coalition of Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament, Abolition 2000 Youth Network, and the World Future Council have put together a series of online events to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations. These will take place between September 21st, which is the International Day for Peace, and October 2nd, which is the International Day of Nonviolence. That's another link we will have up on the website for this week's program. And congratulations to Kristen Iverson. She is the author of the international award-winning book, Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Radioactive Shadow of Rocky Flats, and she has just launched her latest book, Doom with a View, a series of essays that she edited, and it includes material by Heidi Huttner, who is a professor of ecofeminism and lots of other good things at Stony Brook University. We're working on getting an interview with Kristen, And in the meantime, be sure to check out her book. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 8, 2020.
National Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, NewAtlas.com, APNews.com, Euronews.com, Hani.co.kr, DailyPost.co.uk, Dianuke.org, BBC.com, TheAtlantic.com, USNews.com, MerkMessenger.com, Dr. Helen Caldicott, NukeWatch.org, PublicNewsService.org, OPB.org, Reuters.com, Dispatch.com, AJC.com, Forbes.com, and the ever-co-opted Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Nuclear Hot Seat has a new episode every week and has since June of 2011. You can check out our archive by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and putting in your favorite nuclear search terms. And if you want to make certain you never miss a single upcoming episode of the show, If you scroll down at NuclearHotSeat.com, you will find a yellow opt-in box. Put in your first name, put in your email address, and once a week, I promise you I don't spam you with this stuff, just once a week, you will get an email that has the link to this week's show, just as soon as it posts, as well as a brief description of some of the contents. It's an easy way to get your fix of Nuclear Hot Seat, or you can sign up at any one of the basic podcast platforms that you like to use because we're there. We're dependent on people who are on the front lines in your own communities to help us understand exactly what's going on and keep up with the stories. So if you know of a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment and when you're on the website, look for that red button. Click on it. Help us out in any way that you can. We are always grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that as President Ronald Reagan said in his 1984 State of the Union speech, A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. There you have it. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. <laughs>